You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Hannah Wallach. Hannah is guest hosting this episode of Talking Machines, and thanks so much, Hannah, for making time for us. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. And Hannah's joining us today because this episode is in celebration of the 10th anniversary of WIML, Women in Machine Learning, which is an organization that Hannah helped to found. So Hannah, before we get more into WIML, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a senior researcher at Microsoft Research in New York and a adjunct associate professor in the College of Computer and Information Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And my machine learning background is all about sort of Bayesian latent variable models, statistical topic models, and that kind of thing. But the stuff that I've been doing over the past few years has been in the interdisciplinary area of computational social science. So in other words, I've been developing and using machine learning methods to understand the structure content and dynamics of various different social phenomena and social processes. And I've been finding this really fun, not least because it's pretty interesting. It's kind of new territory and exciting new area. But also I get to collaborate with social scientists for most of my research projects. And I really enjoy getting to do that and getting to really develop methods for answering questions that people in these other disciplines really care about. It's very cool. So Wimmel just had its 10th occurrence in December of 2015. Uh, they're co-located at NIPS. Um, and there were some really awesome talks that went on. Can you tell us more about what happened at this year's, this past conference? Sure. All four talks were totally amazing. And there was kind of a common theme to all of the talks, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, so all four talks focused on the various relationships between humans and machine learning uh, in various different kinds of ways. So there were four very different talks, but they all still had that same kind of core thing at the heart of them. The first talk was by was by Lillian Lee. I love Lillian's work. Her research is at the intersection of uh, machine learning, natural language processing, and the social sciences. So much like my own work, which is probably why I like her work so much. Um, and, her <laughs> and her papers are always super creative and innovative, and they tackle some really fun topics. Um, she's also a total badass, uh, both in terms of her research, as evidenced by her papers, and also in the rest of her life. So as evidence of that, she played hockey in her department's co-ed scrimmages, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, and she gives these really, really amazing talks, and her talk at Wimmel was absolutely no exception in that regard. Um, so she, she, my favorite bit, in fact, was a comment she made on presentation style, where she said, your goal is not to convince people that you are brilliant, but that your solution is trivial. And then she noted that it takes a certain strength of character to take that as one's goal. But if people think your findings are obvious, they must also think that you're correct. And I thought that was amazing. You see, she's a total badass, totally awesome. Um, so just her talk in general was great. Um, and she talked about uh, three different projects. And all of them were to do with 
using machine learning and natural language processing to find structure in tasks and specifically sort of language and phrasing related tasks that are challenging but not impossible for humans. And so the goal there is both sort of learning about humans, understanding how humans work, but also building better systems for, for dealing with these kinds of tasks. Um, yeah, it was really cool. And so all three of these projects were really about uh, the effect of language choice and phrasing. So in other words, does phrasing affect real world outcomes? And I thought this was really interesting because intuitively it seems to me as if it really would. But in fact, there's actually a bunch of past research suggesting that maybe it doesn't matter. So what Lillian and her colleagues did was they used this really cool experimental paradigm to actually try and figure out whether wording alone can be influential. And they exploited situations with many instances of the same speaker in the same situation or conveying the same information, but varying their wording, and then studied the effect. So, for example, you can kind of think about like the movie Groundhog Day. Um, and so you have Bill Murray's character who that finds himself in this same situation over and over again. And the only thing he can change is what he says and does. And of course, that does dramatically affect the situation. So that was kind of their, their experimental setup for all of these projects. I'm not going to talk about all three of the projects that she covered, um, although you can check out her slides, which are going to be on the Talking Machines website to learn more. Um, I'm just going to talk about one of them that I thought was especially cool. And this one was all about whether phrasing affects memorability. So to study this, they looked at movie quotes. And what they did, I thought was really clever, they paired IMDB memorable quotes with other quotes, non-memorable quotes, that were roughly adjacent, roughly the same length, spoken by the same person. And then what they did was they ran a pilot study where they showed experimental subjects 12 pairs of these quotes from movies that they hadn't seen. They didn't want someone's existing experience of movies to bias the outcome. And they asked them which of the quotes from the pair was the memorable quote. And so to illustrate this in her talk, Lillian actually gave us, the Wimmel participants, some of these example pairs and asked us to vote on which one we thought was memorable each time. And here's the, yeah, it was really fun. And here's the interesting thing. It's actually pretty hard to guess. So for each quote she showed us, both the Wimmel audience there, um, and also it turned out it was the same for their experimental subjects, were fairly divided, but they did get some of them right. And in fact, it turns out that humans get about sort of 72 to 78% correct, which is pretty much exactly what you need for a task to be considered interesting. I thought this was really cool. So if humans get 50%, the task is basically impossible. And if they get 100%, then the task is trivial. This just isn't interesting. But somewhere in between, you know, maybe somewhere around that kind of 72 to 78%, you start to think that maybe there are some actually really interesting language features intrinsic to quotes that somehow indicate memorability. 
And so remember, when they were sort of gathering these kinds of stats and running their experiments, they are, of course, controlling for who's saying the quote, so the speaker. Uh, they're also controlling for kind of storyline effects. Um, and they're doing this by using pairs of quotes from the same person in roughly the same situation. What they did was after they ran their kind of pilot experimental study, uh, Lily and her, and her colleagues hypothesized actually from the quotes that these experimental subjects were, or comments that these experimental subjects were leaving on their responses, that maybe memorable quotes more often involve some kind of a distinctive turn of phrase and maybe they tend to invoke general themes that aren't tied to the specific setting that they came from. And so then they can be more easily invoked in other contexts. So what they ended up doing was analyzing the statistical properties of memorable and non-memorable quotes to try to test these hypotheses. And what they found was that on average, memorable quotes contain more surprising conversations of words, but more common syntactic structures. So in other words, they do appear to be more distinctive. So that was their hypothesis number one, but only at the word level, not at the syntax level. And then they also found that memorable quotes are, in fact, more kind of freestanding. So they contain fewer markers that indicate references to nearby text. And so here, this appears to be support for hypothesis number two. So in other words, quotes, memorable quotes do, in fact, appear to be more generally applicable. Wow. That's really fascinating. Yeah. She's doing this work at Cornell, right? Yes, that's right. So she's a she's a full professor in the Department of Computer Science and the Department of Information Science. Nice. Wow. So tell me about the, the next speaker, Raya. What was her work on? So Raya is a research scientist at Google DeepMind. And Raya's research is all on deep learning, which is a super hot topic at the moment. And she did her PhD with Jan LeCun and has actually been working in this area for over a decade. So much longer than many of the people working on deep learning at the moment. Um, so I think that Raya and her, you know, decade of working on deep learning is firstly just cool in and of itself, but all the more impressive because there are actually so few women working in this area. It seems to be an area where there are fewer women working than even in other areas of machine learning. So I'm really impressed that Raya has been doing this for so long. Raya's talk was also about this relationship between humans and machine learning, but her talk was all about treating fundamentally human tasks, in other words, tasks that humans are really good at, but computers are really bad at, as machine learning problems. This is really challenging and a really important step towards kind of the holy grail of understanding intelligence or solving AI. And I also really like the title of her talk, which was Superhuman Multitasking. I thought to myself, those are skills that I need. I need to be able to do this myself. She started off by telling us um, really about the DeepMind research premise, um, which is that games are the perfect platform for developing and testing artificial intelligence algorithms. And they give sort of three reasons for this, which I thought was really cool. Um, so firstly, games are both difficult and interesting for humans. 
Uh, they all involve kind of situated cognition. So this is kind of the cognitive decisive response to particular situations rather than just kind of the ability to do abstract calculations like arithmetic or something like that. Uh, the second reason is that there's a huge variety of games that are challenging and interesting for humans, and they're challenging in different ways and therefore require all kinds of different skills. So, for example, some might require speed, some might require accuracy, uh, they might need memory skills, spatial comprehension, pattern matching, even things like mental models of physical processes like gravity, uh, and then stuff like language and logic as well. And then the third reason is that they contain built-in evaluation criteria and rewards. So typically in terms of like the score that a player gets in playing a game, that tells you exactly how well you're doing at it. So I thought this was really interesting um, because I hadn't particularly thought about games being this kind of perfect platform for developing and testing AI algorithms before. Um, and I also thought it was really cool how Raya and her DeepMind colleagues are actually tackling this. And what they're doing is they're using established ideas from reinforcement learning combined with newer ideas from deep learning to develop agents or systems that can actually play games without human intervention. So Raya told us about DeepMind's first contribution to this area, which was a system that plays 8-bit Atari 2600 games. <laughs> yeah, so awesome. That's so cool. Exactly. It's totally awesome. And even more awesome is the fact that the agents just get the raw pixels, the screen pixels, as inputs. So they don't get anything else. They just get what's on that screen, just like a human gets. And then their goal is just to maximize the score. So they're literally playing it the same way that you would play it. That's right. Exactly. They're just looking at what's on the screen and trying to improve their score. And even more impressively, everything is learned from scratch. And so what actually happens is the system uses something called deep cue learning. This is an approach to reinforcement learning that involves deep neural networks to achieve this kind of superhuman game playing performance. And it's really impressive. Raya walked us through some of the math behind deep cue learning. And then she showed us a video of the system learning to play breakout. And what you see is that initially the system, the agent doesn't do so well. But then after 60 minutes and even 120 minutes of training, it's still not doing so well, okay? But then after 240 minutes of training, something happens and the agent has figured it out and is totally nailing it. And it's really impressive to kind of just see this video over time and to see the system going from doing something that just seems ridiculous and makes no sense in terms of playing Breakout to actually doing a really good job of playing the game. She also told us about some of her work on policy distillation for transferring knowledge from teacher agents to untrained student agents. And this is cool because you can use this approach to consolidate knowledge from multiple game-specific agents into a single student agent that can play all these different games. And so by doing this, you end up then with one system that can play a whole bunch of games at almost the same levels as these game-specific teacher agents.
So the other thing that Raya did was to just walk us kind of briefly through a sampler of DeepMind's other research project. They don't just obviously work on Atari games. So she told us a little bit about stuff that they're doing uh, involving other games, stuff that they're doing involving image recognition, and even some really cool stuff about teaching machines how to read. And the whole thing was just really awesome, really cool, and just super interesting stuff, both from a technical perspective and from a just, wow, this is really fun perspective. That sounds amazing. And uh, Bean Kim from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, she also presented, yes? Yeah. Um, so Bean got her PhD from MIT very recently, just this past year in 2015. And her research is all about inserting humans into the machine learning process. So in her words, she designs machine learning methods inspired by how humans think that both make sense to humans and that can interact with humans. So her talk was all about interactive and interpretable machine learning models for human-machine collaboration. And so like Raya's talk, her talk was also about things that humans are good at. But unlike the work Raya presented, Bean's research takes advantage of humans' knowledge and skills and goals by kind of including them in the loop. And then by including humans in this way, she can develop systems that are easier for humans to under understand and systems that actually produce better outcomes, specifically outcomes that are more useful or appropriate for humans. So she talked about two of her projects in this area. So this project was some work she did on combining ideas from Bayesian latent variable modeling. So this is actually the type of, of machine learning modeling that I spend a lot of time doing uh, with ideas from case-based reasoning. And the key idea that she was working with was to use examples, so prototype data points, and subspaces, so sets of characteristic features, to provide explanations for machine learning results. And here's the basic idea. All right, so this is what she told us about. I thought this was great. So suppose you want to group, for example, a bunch of recipes into clusters, and then you want to explain the resultant clusters to a human. So obviously, you could cluster your data points, and then you could just list all of the data points, so recipes, in each cluster. But that's kind of time consuming and maybe not so useful for the human to just get this massive list of recipes in each cluster. But a better approach might be to uh, do something like give the human a quintessential data point, so in this case a recipe, that somehow best represents each cluster. So for each cluster, you give them this quintessential data point that somehow represents it. Or, for example, you could give them a set of important features. So in the case of recipes, this would be ingredients that then characterize the recipes in that cluster. And so Bean and her collaborators developed a model that does exactly this. It not only clusters data points, but it also selects a prototype, so an actual data point in the data set, and a subspace, so a set of features, that then characterize each cluster. And as someone who spends really probably months of my life, if not years, scrutinizing kind of lists of data points in clusters, I was super excited about this idea. They actually put a huge amount of work into validating their model, which I also thought was really cool, and I want to talk briefly about that. 
Um, so specifically, they asked whether the prototypes and subspaces make sense. They asked whether their model was sacrificing cluster performance for interpretability. And they asked whether the model actually made sense and was useful for humans. And I've actually written a lot about the issues involved in model validation before. Um, but I think model validation is actually one of the biggest challenges when developing unsupervised machine learning models. There isn't usually any ground truth. So how do you know if your model is actually doing a good job? And moreover, when the model is supposed to be interpretable, as is the case for the stuff that Bean's working on, how do you check that this is actually the case? Um, interestingly, I think that quantitative social scientists have put sort of way more thought into these questions in a very nuanced and careful fashion um, than the machine learning community. It's really cool to read some of their papers on this. And then they built upon this first project in the second project that Bean talked about, which I'm just going to talk about very quickly. Here, what they did was they built on this idea of interpretable models to add sort of interactive capabilities into the modeling process by allowing users to supply feedback during clustering. And I'm not going to talk about any of the model details or anything like that, but I thought the setting in which she tested and used this model was really cool. So she used it to cluster introductory Python programming homeworks and then to select kind of prototype homework solutions and Python keywords. And they actually built an interface that allows teachers to kind of promote or demote solutions as prototypes and to select or unselect keywords as features. And I thought this was really impressive. And among other things, what they did was then by using this interface um, with a, uh, in a set of experiments with domain experts, they found that the experts felt that they better explored the full spectrum of students' homework solutions, among other things. And one of the final talks was by Karina Cortez of Google Research, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Um, so this was actually Karina's second invited talk at a Wimmel workshop. Her first talk was in either 2008 or 2009, I don't remember which. Um, and Corinna's pretty amazing. She's the head of Google Research in New York. She's super senior, and she's made some truly amazing contributions to machine learning over the course of her career. So most notably, she was instrumental in developing support vector machines, SVMs, one of the most widely used supervised machine learning algorithms. And this is really cool. So we were very lucky to get her uh, to come and give a talk at Wimmel this year. Her talk was, it was really good, just like the others. And it was all about finding or even creating structure through massive quantities of unstructured information on the web. And so although this might not seem like something that touches on that relationship between humans and machine learning, it actually really does. Because you, you can kind of think of the web as this massive socio-technical mess. There's all this information made by humans for other humans, but it's entirely mediated by the technical constraints of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and so on. 
And so Corinna talked about taking vast quantities of online information and not only making this information accessible to humans, so you can think of this as sort of being Google search results, the kind of thing that you expect Google to be doing, but also turning it into really useful structured forms like those information boxes on the right-hand side of your Google search results. And in some ways, I thought this was a nice compliment sort of related to Bean's work, because the ultimate goal is also to develop systems that produce outcomes that are more qualitatively useful for humans. So Corinna covered three projects. I'm only going to tell you about one of them. Um, and this project was all about finding good tables on the web. So in other words, tables that contain useful, interesting data that can be summarized and presented to humans, as opposed to, for example, tables of contents or simple lists and things like that. And this is actually a surprisingly challenging task. So Corinna and her colleagues developed a machine learning classifier for doing this, but they found that there are some really significant challenges, both in terms of feature design and also training example selection. So, for example, the meaning of a table, something that's clearly important in uh, determining whether or not a table is good and interesting for humans, is actually also, uh, often conveyed by the surrounding text. It's not in the table at all. So you could imagine, for example, a table listing all the Democratic primaries in 2012. So each row is a primary, the columns are the primary's dates, the states, the number of votes for Obama, and so on. But if you look at the table itself, there's nothing in there that actually indicates explicitly that this table is about the 2012 Democratic primaries. You actually have to kind of infer this from the data somehow. So figuring out what this table um, is about, in other words, the table subject, is really hard. It's not trivial. And so one way to do this, and this is actually, I believe, what Corinna and her colleagues did, was to come up with a way of detecting a subject column. So here, this would be the primary's unique dates. And then the other columns contain properties of the subject. So Corinna talked about the feature design involved in determining subject columns and their properties as well as uh, various other structural features of tables. So things like numbers of rows and columns, number of characters per cell, that are really useful for actually identifying good tables and distinguishing them from tables that maybe aren't so interesting for humans. She also actually talked about how even constructing a data set of training examples is really tricky because most tables on the web are bad. Only 2% are good, in other words, contain information that is meaningful and interesting for humans. Uh, but to develop a useful classifier, you actually need kind of a balanced sample of good and bad tables. So Corinna and her colleagues therefore used a pipelined process where they eliminate uninteresting tables, so bad tables, based on rules. This is very cheap and easy to do. And then they filter the remaining tables using a simple classifier with very simple, easy to compute features. Again, the idea being you want this to be pretty fast and easy and easy to actually use. And then what they do is they use the remaining tables to form a stratified training set of good and bad tables. And then they train their classifier with all of these interesting features for things like subject columns and stuff like that on this data set. 
And their system works really well. I thought this was really cool. She showed us examples of structured snippets and information boxes in Google web searches created using information extracted from good tables. And I thought this was awesome. It's really cool to hear about the machine learning behind something that just so many people all over the world use every day. So it sounds like Wimmel 2015, your 10th anniversary was really amazing. All these talks sound fantastic. Yeah, so all four invited talks were just really amazing. I learned a huge amount, both by listening to them and then sort of reading over the slides afterwards, which again is something you can do by checking out the slides on the website. Um, I also thought the contributed talks by students and postdocs were really great. And the poster session was just fantastic. It was super fun. So for more information about Wimmel 2015 and all the talks that we've just heard about, you can go to our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So this week's listener question, this being the first episode of Talking Machines of season two, um, I'm going to take the prerogative, everybody, being the producer of the show. I'm going to ask our first question. And Hannah, um, I'm really fascinated by WIML, which is this organization, um, Women in Machine Learning, that you helped to start. And this past year at NIPS, NIPS 2015, was the 10th anniversary of WIML. WIML is co-located at NIPS. So I wanted to get a little bit more perspective on, on how it started and how it's evolved. And we're going to be able to hear from, from Jen Wartman Vaughn, who was one of your co-founders of WIML, yes? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, we're very excited about this. Um, I, I certainly don't think when we when we co-founded Wemmel that we expected that it would be still here and going strong in its 10th year. So we're, we're really delighted that it is. Um, and this year's workshop was a huge success. Jen and I both attended. Uh, we actually made the, re the opening remarks along with Amy Greenwald. And it was really, really fun. And I'm delighted that we've got Jen here on the show today. So, so Jen, um, tell us about how you met Hannah. How did you get involved with Wimmel? How did this whole thing grow? So I met Hannah when I was a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Hannah came for a visit during her PhD and sort of never left. I think she was... <laughs> That's right. It was supposed to be a three-month visit, but turned into a four-year visit. I'm not quite sure how that happened. Back in 2005, I was planning to attend NIPS for the first time to present my um, first piece of machine learning research. And... Um, Hannah and I decided to share a room with each other there. Um, in fact, we ended up sharing a condo with each other and um, with two other grad students, Lisa Weiner and Angela Yu. Um, and we hadn't really talked all that much before NIPS, but um, during that week, we spent a lot of time together. Um, I think that you know, we were both a little overwhelmed by how large of a conference SNPs was, even though it was significantly smaller than it is now. I think there are around 600 people. Um, but, you know, to relatively new grad students, it still felt a bit large and intimidating. And um, I think both of us felt like we didn't 
exactly fit in with the rest of the community. So it was really exciting to um, find other people that, you know, were similar to us and were going through the same things. In fact, it was actually my fourth year at NIPS, but my first year even sharing a hotel room with other women. So, so Jen, tell me a little bit about um, how Wimmel got started. I understand it was it was not originally supposed to be co-located at NIPS. It, it, your, the first attempt at holding Wimmel was at a totally different conference. During that first year at NIPS, we spent a lot of time you know, talking about how great it was that there are four of us in this hotel room together and, you know, how it was so nice to be able to learn about what other women in machine learning were doing. And Hannah and Lisa Weiner and I ended up, um, you know, late one night counting up all of the women that we could think of on our fingers, came up with a list of about 10. And decided that it would be incredible if we could have some type of event where we got all of these women together in one place to learn about each other's research and provide some sort of support network for each other. So after we returned home from NIPS, the three of us decided to put together a proposal for a session to be held at the Grace Hopper Conference for Women in Computing that would be a technical session featuring entirely um, work by women in machine learning. So we started writing this proposal for this Grace Hopper session. And in the process, we started you know, looking around online and trying to figure out what other women were out there. And we started getting in touch with um, basically all of the women in machine learning that we could find. And by the time we submitted the proposal, we had um, five faculty speakers lined up and, stu- and 20 student presenters who were interested in coming along and presenting their work, which to us just seemed amazing at the time. So we submitted this proposal and you know, while it was under review, we kept um, discovering more women and reaching out to them and talking to them and the word started spreading. And by the time that the Grace Hopper Conference got back to us, we had received so much interest that we were actually worried that having just this single short session wouldn't be enough. And we wanted to hold an entire day-long event. So we decided to withdraw our proposal and um, organize the event ourselves as a separate entire day-long workshop co-located with Grace Hopper. Nice. And and since then, it, the Wimmel has moved to be co-located with NIPS, and it's only continued to grow. Can, can you tell me a little bit how about how Wimmel has changed since that first conference? Um, definitely. So at the first conference... Um, we actually already had a, a sizable audience there. We ended up with around 100 participants, um, three of which were men. And um, at the end, of, I mean, we were never planning on this being you know, a repeated event. It was just something that we were going to do this one time. But by the end of the day, it became clear that you know 
people love this idea and they really wanted to keep it going. And already we had other students volunteering to organize it again if it was held in a following year. So we decided to try to make this an annual event. Um, the second year we also held it at the Grace Hopper Conference, but um, we quickly determined that, you know, for several reasons it would be more useful if we could actually hold this at a machine learning conference like NIPS. Um, first of all, we were able through the generous support of um, NSF and um, various companies to be able to provide travel funding for most of the students who attended the conference. And we thought that that travel funding would go to better use if um, students were able to kind of piggyback on this and stay at a machine learning conference for the entire week. So it would allow them to attend a machine learning conference that maybe they wouldn't have been able to attend otherwise. And um, we also thought it would be really useful to hold this before a major machine learning conference like NIPS because um, all of the attendees would be able to spend the day um, meeting people and getting to know each other. And then through the rest of the conference, they would you know, have these new friends that they made and it would be a little bit less intimidating than it was for us at first. So in 2008, um, thanks to the support of the NIPS Foundation, we decided to move Wimmel to be co-located with NIPS. Fantastic. And so it's been with NIPS ever since. How have you seen it change from 2008 to this past conference? I guess the biggest change is that um, we established an executive board in 2009, which started working behind the scenes to um, add a little bit of continuity from year to year and you know, ensure that there are people out there who are thinking about the continued success of the workshop and you know, organizing projects with a lifespan of more than a year and just making sure that we're making progress. Um, since then, this executive board has secured several large NSF grants for travel funding. We've been able to gather and analyze impact statistics, um, do things like establish a mentoring program, um, and so on. Uh, most recently, we have um, published a database of women in machine learning online that we're hoping the community will use as a way of, um, you know, finding out what women are out there working in various areas and, um, you know, using this as a resource when looking for invited speakers for conferences or program committee members or so on. Um, yeah, that's one of the major issues in the field today is that is that there are lots of, there are more and more women look, working in the field, but they're underrepresented at conferences and panels and, and in events. Do you, you know, from the sort of Wimmel perspective, is there anything that you suggest that the community can do to help promote the work and the involvement of women in the more public side of the community? Definitely. So there are a lot of um, things that it's fairly easy for both men and women to do that, you know, could really improve some of these ratios. So 
the first thing is, you know, if you're asked to be a speaker at an event or to serve on a panel or something like this, you know, ask the organizers of this event for a speaker lineup. Find out who else is giving talks, who else is on this panel, and so on. And if you see that it's yet another one of these events where there are no women who are invited to talk or no women who are involved in the organization, you know, just suggest some relevant women. There are plenty of qualified women out there and, um, you know, a lot of the time it's just a matter of making sure that organizers are aware and thinking about these issues. And of course, you can even point them to our new WIML directory in that situation. And what what do you think that conferences themselves, those people who are involved in the organizing, what can they do or how, what do you think needs to change in order to get a, a better representation of gender diversity in these conferences and these events? So a lot of it just comes down to awareness. Um, I don't think that any of the organizers of the events were, you know, purposely excluding women. I think it's just not something that everybody thinks about. And so one idea that I've started um, hearing more and more from Hannah and others is that um, conferences could actually institute something like a diversity chair. And the idea is that, you know, a large conference like NIPS could appoint someone diversity chair. This person would um, interact with the workshop chairs, with the tutorial chairs, and so on, and just make sure that everyone at every level is keeping diversity in mind, um, make sure that they're um, considering having speakers and um, PC members who are female and who are from other um, underrepresented groups and, you know, just make sure it's not something that slips through the cracks. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, get in touch with us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Jen Wartman Vaughn of Microsoft Research New York. We asked her the same question that we start all of our interviews with. How did you get where you are? It's taken me quite a while to get to this point, although um, I've been at least interested in computer science all of the way along. So I took my first computer science course back when I was in high school. In that class, we were programming in Pascal, so that dates me. You can probably figure out how old I am from that. But I like that class a lot. I actually had a female computer science teacher, which is pretty unusual, and um, she encouraged me a lot and I found that I really liked the computational way of thinking. It was really appealing. Um, I'd been really into logic puzzles when I was little so this seemed like you know a very similar way of thinking about things and I decided after that class that I wanted to go into computer science. I went to Boston University for uh, my undergrad. Towards the end of college I got really into computer graphics, and I decided that I wanted to um, 
learn more about computer graphics. So I decided to go to Stanford for my master's. Um, but once I got there, I realized that you know, once I moved beyond the intro graphics courses, it really wasn't for me anymore. Um, the classes suddenly involved a lot of physics and things that I was not so um, good at. So I started taking a bunch of AI classes and I was really drawn to those. I, I thought that AI was just extremely exciting and it was a much better fit for me. Um, in particular, I took a class on multi-agent systems, which um, is an AI class that thinks about that looks at things like um, game theoretic reasoning and incentives and economics, and uses these ideas to look at interactions between um, multiple agents. And I found this class really exciting. And at the end of the class, um, the Professor Yoav Shoham invited me to get involved in research with his group. So I had never done anything to do with research at all until that point, but um, it was a really great opportunity, and I was able to work with um, Yoav and his students and learn about the research process, and um, it was really exciting. It sounds fantastic. And then after you completed your master's, you went to Penn to get your PhD. Is that correct? Yes. So um, towards the end of my master's, I was discovering that, you know, I really enjoyed research a lot and, um, you know, didn't really want to get a real job. So <laughs> it seemed like the PhD was the natural next step. So I moved to Penn and started a PhD under Michael Kearns. Um, at that point, I shifted mostly to working in machine learning and um, in particular learning theory, but I, I kept on thinking a lot about these um, game theoretic issues and incentives that I had thought about during my master's, and um, I ended up you know, being drawn towards machine learning problems where there was some um, economic or game theoretic component, you know, problems where it was important to consider incentives. So things like um, machine learning from data that's generated by crowds of people who are self-motivated. Um, and this got me interested in, you know, learning from human-generated data and so on. Nice. And then you went to Harvard for your postdoc, yes? Um, yes. So I was graduating from Penn in 2009. If you remember, the job market and economy in general was all pretty grim at that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was a little depressing. But I um, simultaneously looked for postdocs and faculty positions and um, ended up accepting a tenure-track position at UCLA, but um, decided to defer my position for a year to go to Harvard for a postdoc. At Harvard, I was working um, partially with Yiling Chen, who works in algorithmic economics, and with Les Falliant, who's the father of learning theory. Um, and I had a really fantastic time. I definitely recommend um, postdocs to anybody who's thinking of going into a research career. It's a really, you know, 
special opportunity to have the time without a lot of pressure on you to just do research and explore. A couple of my very favorite papers came out of this period, and I sort of carved out a whole new research direction, um, looking at connections between uh, prediction markets and machine learning. And I'm, you know, six years later, I'm still working on some problems in this direction. So it was a really fun time and also a really useful time, productive time. That sounds awesome. So tell me a little bit more about your, your favorite paper that came out of your postdoc. What was, what was the question that you were most excited to tackle at that time? So I was um, talking a lot with Yiling about prediction markets. Um, at a very high level, prediction markets are just financial markets that are designed to elicit traders' beliefs. So, um, for example, you could have a prediction market that offers a security that's going to be worth $1 if and only if Hillary Clinton wins the 2016 election. And, you know, if I think about this, if I'm a trader and I believe that the probability of Clinton winning the election is P, then on expectation, I would do well to buy this security at any price that's less than P dollars or sell the security at any price that's greater than P dollars. So um, for this reason, the market price of a security can be interpreted as traders' collective beliefs about how likely it is that Clinton will win the election. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we were thinking a lot about um, these types of markets, which you know were very appealing to me as someone who is both into machine learning and prediction and also into economics and incentives. We noticed that there are these, these standard ways of operating prediction markets. Um, using these algorithmic agents called um, automated market makers. And these automated market makers are always willing to buy or sell securities at some price that depends on the history of previous trade. And um, Yiling and I noticed that the most commonly used um, automated market maker actually mathematically looks strikingly similar to um, this exponential weight style algorithm that's commonly used in online learning. And we wanted to know, you know, whether this was a coincidence or whether there is really something deep going on here. So we looked into this problem more and discovered that there actually are um, really deep mathematical connections behind the ideas that are used in um, driving these automated market makers for prediction markets and algorithms for online learning. Hmm. And this was a connection that people hadn't realized before, but it was actually you know, really useful because it let us take advantage of all of this work that's been done in online learning in the machine learning community to come up with um, better market makers for prediction markets and um, market makers that would let us run types of markets that were intractable to run previously. You know, we thought about a lot about this connection, and it led us to come up with an entire 
theoretical framework for um, how to drive these market makers for prediction markets. And um, this has kind of led to a whole area of research and, you know, is still influencing things that I work on today. So these ideas are so some of the things that still motivate your work. That's that's really amazing. And then after your postdoc, you were at UCLA for two years, and and now you're at Microsoft Research in New York, right? Yes. So I spent two years at UCLA, and at that point, um, I had this amazing opportunity to move to Microsoft Research in New York City. So I've been here since 2012 now. And this lab is really a perfect fit for me in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, it's an extremely collaborative environment, which I love. Everybody works with everybody, and it's just a very fun and productive place to be. And um, our core um, research areas here are machine learning, algorithmic economics, and computational social science, which are all really exciting areas that my work touches on. So it's just, it's a fantastic and very fun place to be. Nice. So tell me about what you're working on right now. You're you're sort of exploring the assumptions that we have about how humans interact with systems. Is that right? These days, I've been working in this area that I've taken to calling um, mathematical foundations of social computing. So here, social computing encompasses mechanisms through which people interact with um, computational systems. So I'm thinking about systems like um, prediction markets, like I mentioned earlier, like crowdsourcing markets, um, recommendation systems, citizen science projects, or you know any system like this in which we have um, essentially computations being made jointly by humans and machines. So this area is very closely related to what some people call human computation. Um, and my own work often looks at how to design and analyze improved algorithms for these computational systems that have humans in the loop. And um, for this, I tend to do a lot of theoretical modeling, so trying to come up with some mathematical model that describes you know, the world that we're interacting in, so describes where all of our data is coming from um, and so on, so that I can then design um, algorithms that are optimized for this world. But of course, when we're talking about doing this for scenarios where there are humans in the loop, um, this means that I often end up needing to come up with these mathematical models of how humans are behaving in the system, which is a really unsatisfying thing to do. So a lot of the time, um, this work tends to you know, draw heavily on ideas from economics. So in economics, it's standard to assume that you know, people are rational, they're maximizing some utility function, and so on. Um, whereas in the real world, this is typically not how people actually behave. And so um, more recently, this has inspired me to 
um, start drawing on the literature from behavioral economics and psychology that looks at how people actually behave and um, to start collaborating with experts in areas like online behavioral social science um, to try to better understand how humans act in these social computing systems. And my sort of long-term goal here, the ideal would be to you know, be able to work with these online behavioral social scientists to figure out how people actually behave and um, import our findings back um, into theoretical models that I can then use to design better algorithms for social computing systems. That sounds really amazing. I mean, you're you're optimizing for reality. Like that's that's going to be a huge shift because we've been sort of up until now optimizing for something for a world that kind of doesn't exist. How do you how has it been going so far? You know, it's slow going. Um, it always takes a lot of you know initial effort to start collaborating with people um, with different backgrounds and so recently I've just been putting a lot of work into understanding how to run behavioral experiments and you know how to work in all of these areas that are somewhat new to me but it's definitely exciting and you know I'm constantly surprised by what we find it's not at all what I would have thought in advance so as someone who is just who has a has a background in ML and computer science and is now trying to um, talk to someone from another academic silo who has different skills I feel like this is a trend in in ML and a lot of researchers are doing this these days what would be your advice to someone who's found an, another found an interest in another field and they're they're hoping to begin a collaboration with another researcher how how do you get started how do you start to learn someone else's language it's a lot of work I think that you just need to be really dedicated to it and willing to approach everything with an open mind and you know understand that people may not you know understand your jargon at first may not um, have the same goals as you and you just need to keep working at it and communicating with each other and you know approach it with an open mind try to learn from other people Jen Wartman-Vaughn. She's doing all of her amazing work at Microsoft Research in New York. And it's it's always fascinating to hear Jen talk, particularly about just pushing against these fundamental assumptions we've made about how humans act when they're in the loop with computer systems. Really great stuff. Yeah, Jen's work is amazing. She's a, she's a really fantastic researcher. I'm just super glad that we get to work in the same place nowadays. She is, she's great. So that's it for us for this episode. I'm Katherine Gorman. And I'm Hannah Wallach. Tune in next time.